Hello, and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gell, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Macular degeneration is the leading cause of blindness in the United States and people over the age of 55. There are 2 million people worldwide that are blind in both eyes from macular degeneration, and 270 people go blind each day from this blinding disease. Today, we're really very lucky to have a guest, our guest, Dr. Chris Kenobi. He's an ophthalmologist, eye physician, and surgeon, and he's given this topic a lot of thought. He left clinical practice about five years ago to pursue his passion to find a cure for this blinding disease. Dr. Kenobi and colleagues started the Cure AMD Foundation. He has written an amazing book called The Ancestral Dietary Strategy to Prevent and Treat AMD. I want to thank you for joining me today, Chris. It's, it's, real, it's really an honor to be with you. My pleasure, Kerry. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's an honor. Well, I want to start with, if you could explain to our audience, what is macular degeneration? Yeah, so the macula, first of all, is, the, is just the central retina. It's the central 10 degrees uh, of the retina, or accounts for the, uh, approximately the central 10 degrees of your vision. And in macular degeneration, uh, I guess the, na the, the name gives it away. It's a degenerative disease of that part of the eye, um, which would account for your central vision. And this, is, this leads to uh, a blurring of central vision, um, uh, poor night vision, and eventually central blind areas. So in other words, people eventually may get to the point where they can't read, they can't see a stop sign, they can't see their grandchildren's faces, for example. Um, and as you mentioned in the opening, um, a, a substantial number of people are even going blind from this disease. Um, I just want to say that um, as of uh, 2020, this year, it is estimated 196 million people in the world have macular degeneration, and that number is expected to grow to 288 million by 2040. And if you think about this, um, because of the fact that this disease would, would occur in the last maybe 20 years or so of your life, the people that have macular degeneration in 2020, most of them won't be alive in 2040. So that is a whole new group of people that, that 288 million that will develop macular degeneration in this next 20, you know, 20 to 30 years, essentially. And then one other statistic is um, the World Health Organization, I've updated my statistics since the book, but the World Health Organization uh, uh, reviewed that a around 3.15 million people were blind in both eyes as of 2006. Now that's the latest data, 14 years ago, to my knowledge. And uh, so I, so I, I did the calculations on this, and this means that roughly, you know, probably at least 340 people are going blind every day. In other words, they were already blinded one eye from macular degeneration, and then today they will lose vision in their opposite eye 
making them bilaterally blind. Three point, you know, three point one five million in two thousand six. So I'm I would guess there's probably between four to five million people in the world blind in both eyes from macular degeneration today. That's an incredible statistic. Now you gave up clinical practice as a passion to help prevent this disease. Tell us that story. Right, so, you know, very quickly, Carrie, the, <clears throat> the story begins with my own, uh, my own health problems. And um, in my case, it was and remains um, arthritis. Um, and I actually, started uh, suffering with arthritis when I was probably about 34 years old. I was just out of ophthalmology residency and um, I'll keep this really this part really brief so I don't want to waste people's time but but I um, suffered with that rather you know severely and progressively until until I was 50 years old which was 2011 and um, I actually went on um, a kind of a quasi paleo diet. I gave up grains and dairy for a little bit, actually in 10 days and my arthritis was something like 80% better. And, and Carrie, I was in bad shape with my arthritis. I was just absolutely miserable. It was almost every joint in my body by that point. And um, anyway, this was so fantastically life-changing for me because I'd seen all kinds of physicians all, all of whom pretty much were my friends or colleagues, but, but um, none of them had ever suggested anything about diet or arthritis. It was always a drug or an injection. And anyway, a change in diet gave me 80% relief in 10 days. And, um, you know, today I'm about 90 to 95% better with my arthritis than where I was 10, uh, you know, or nine years ago, I guess. Um, by doing, basically by moving essentially to more of an ancestral diet. So this is what led me on this path. And I just wanted to learn everything I could about nutrition. And then in 2013, can I continue this real quick? Sure. Okay. So in 2013, what happened was, is I, I was, I was, had spent a couple of years trying to understand nu nutrition and what's driving all of this disease and and uh actually lauren cordain's book opened my eyes immensely uh the book was called the paleo answer and anybody who knows about paleo knows that lauren cordain is, is sort of the modern founder and i'm not a paleo guy today but anyway I, so i learned a lot from that but I, a lot of things still didn't make sense to me until i came across the research of weston a price and weston price uh, is a or was a nutrition researcher who in the 1930s studied populations all around the globe on five continents, hundreds of tribes and villages, thousands and thousands of people as they transitioned from native traditional diets to westernized diets. And what Price found was that as people began to westernize their diet, and that that what that meant was consuming man-made processed nutrient deficient foods and uh, price defined those as refined flour, sugars, uh, vegetable fats, which is vegetable oils, uh, canned goods, sweets, confe uh, and confectionery essentially. And uh, so as people 
supplanted and replaced their traditional foods with our modernized processed foods, they first developed dental decay uh, and dental malocclusion and misalignment in the children, and the adults developed de dental decay and abscesses, and they, then they began to develop degenerative diseases like arthritis, cancers, and uh, infectious diseases, and so on. So then, you know, since, so Price died in 1948, but he published two books that, uh, you know, the, when I eventually read those in, in 2013, completely changed my life again. And so I went down this path and it was late 2013 that once I understood that processed food is driving all of this, uh, all of these westernized diseases, which would be heart disease, cancer, stroke, hypertension, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, Alzheimer's disease, um, autoimmune diseases, the list goes on. So 2013, I, in my mind, I, I questioned, could processed foods be driving macular degeneration? That was late 2013. And by February of 2015, I had done enough research that I was convinced that this hypothesis held water, that indeed processed foods are driving macular degeneration. But I knew in order to investigate this i'd have to commit full time or it would take me i figured five or six years to do what we what we accomplished in about 18 months and so essentially what we did was we looked at processed food consumption versus macular degeneration prevalence in 25 nations and in a nutshell what i'll say carrie is is that the data strongly supports the hypothesis that as processed food consumption goes up, macular degeneration prevalence escalates dramatically. And um, so the way we did that was we looked at sugar and vegetable oils as proxy markers of processed foods. But the interesting thing is that sugar and vegetable oils alone um, will account for around almost 50% of the American diet as of 2009 or 10. Just those two things alone, because sugar is about 21% uh, of the American diet today, and vegetable oils, um, from our own published data, is around 32.5% of U.S. caloric consumption. So anyway, so we can get into some details about different countries if you want to, and because I think that's pretty interesting too. But I will just say that in a nutshell, this you know this data strongly supports the hypothesis. In the 19, early 1900s, the late 1800s, there was almost no macular degeneration, no chronic disease. What specifically changed? You, you outlined four main food groups that have changed. And if you could go into each one of those in a little bit of detail and why we had no macular degeneration, we basically had no cancer, cardiovascular disease, and now it's exploded. Right. So, you know, the first thing I thought, Carrie, um, it was that if, if my hypothesis that macular degeneration is driven by processed, nutrient deficient, toxic food consumption, I don't use that term toxic lightly. Uh, I can explain that in, in detail. But if these foods are also driving macular degeneration, then one thing had to be true. 
macular degeneration once had to be rare because we didn't have processed foods 150 years ago, essentially, and I can give you the details on that. I'll come back to that. So what I did was I began, I, I figured that this had all been researched, that you know the, the history of macular degeneration. And in fact, um, only one ophthalmologist had ever done any significant research on that. Um, I, I think the, the supposition has been that macular degeneration prevalence I mean, has all, or macular degeneration has always existed. The prevalence has always been high. Um, and, you know, that this is a, a disease of aging and, well, genetics. And all of those assumptions have proven erroneous. Uh, and, and again, I don't say that lightly either. But, but so I, I went back and began to investigate this and macular degeneration was discoverable in 1851 because of the genius of Hermann von Helmholtz who designed the ophthalmoscope. And so the use of the ophthalmoscope was, was widespread within a decade of, of his publishing his book. So in the 1850s and 60s, the ophthalmoscope was in use all around the world. Um, but um, over, you know, and I probably won't go into all those details, but, but it was, 23 years before the first cases of macular degeneration were described by Jonathan Hutchinson in London in 1874. And uh, 1895, for example, Otto Hobb reviewed 50,000 ophthalmic medical records, uh, patients with ophthalmic medical records, and determined that macular degeneration was as rare as traumatic maculopathy and myopic maculopathy. And you and I both know those are extremely rare disorders. Um, you know, th uh, the typical textbooks from 1851 to 1930 either did not mention macular degeneration or would give it uh, essentially one sentence. And yet we know that by 1975, the, um, the Framingham study showed that macular degeneration affected 8.8% of Americans over age 52 and 27.9% of patients over the age of 75, I believe it was. So almost a third of people over the age of 75 by 1990. So that was four and a half million people. But if you looked back to 1920, or let me just say this, between 1851 and 1930, there was no more than about 50 cases of macular degeneration in all the world's literature. And uh, so, so we know that that 80 year period, the disease was just extraordinarily rare. And yet, uh, you know, today, 2020, there's 196 million people affected in the world. So, okay, so here's what happened. All right, four processed foods, sugar, refined white wheat flour, vegetable oils and trans fats. This is exactly what Weston Price essentially showed us in 1939 and 1945 was driving all of this uh, westernized disease in populations all, all around the world as they, as they transitioned into uh, you know, westernized food consumption. So sugar um, between 1822 and 1999 increased 17 fold. Sugar is a nutrient deficient uh, processed food, all right? Um, second, vegetable oils. The first vegetable oil in the United States was cottonseed oil and it was introduced right after the American Civil War in 1866, essentially. Most of the world 
probably 99.8 or 9% of the world had never consumed a polyunsaturated vegetable oil in their life. Um, and certainly we had none in, in, the, uh, in the United States and none in the UK. Um, anyway, so this was, this was the beginning uh, of uh, vegetable oil consumption. 1880, we got refined white wheat flour because uh, um, of uh, roller mill technology, which could remove the bran and the germ from wheat and give us a refined white wheat flour. Well, refined white wheat flour is a nutrient deficient food. And today, wheat is 20% of the world's diet. In the United States, 85.3% of that is refined, meaning it's nutrient deficient. So it's kind of like sugar in that regard. We're not getting nutrients out of it. And then in 1911, Procter & Gamble introduced trans fats with their product Crisco. And uh, so Crisco uh, is basically uh, partially hydrogenated and hydrogenated vegetable oil. So it also comes from vegetable oil. But if you put those four foods together, you have processed food. So when people say, you know, when people, you know, begin to vilify saturated fat, for example, which really started at about in 1961, um, and or, you know, fat in general, which was in the 60s and 70s. Um, um, and or they, they, they point the finger at the US dietary guidelines, which told us to go low fat in 1980. Um, let me just, I'm gonna go back here. If you go back and look at all of the history in a nutshell, what you see is that we had all the processed foods in place by 1911 sugar, refined wheat flour, vegetable oils, and trans fats. And what happened is, is that big food just took those foods and today makes, or took those four ingredients um, and makes 600,000 food items in the US out of those. And as of 2009, our own USDA reports that 63% of the American diet is made up of those four foods, sugar, refined wheat flour, vegetable oils, and trans fats. They know this, Carrie, they report it. I use their slide in almost every one of my talks to show our own USDA recognizes that this is a massive problem. And I, somebody there at the USDA knows that, that that's what's driving all of this. I mean, or, they know that's connected to a lot of this chronic disease. So that in a nutshell is our problem. So let's look at each one of them separately. Let's start with the polyunsaturated fatty acids, the vegetable oils. How are the vegetable oils made and why are they so bad? And is it the dose, the toxin is the, is, is the dose? Uh, uh, how much of this are we, is the American, the average American eating? Unsuspectedly, I might say. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, okay, so vegetable oils go through a, a very complex uh, process to be produced. Um, so they're, uh, you know, first of all, we take their, so vegetable oils don't come from vegetable, vegetables. They come from seeds primarily, seeds and beans, essentially. And the vegetable oils, let me define these. So these are really um, soybean, corn, canola, uh, cottonseed, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, and rice bran. Those are primarily 
the highly polyunsaturated vegetable oils that go through this really intensive uh, mechanical and chemical process. So the, so the seeds, for example, they go, they're crushed, they're pressed, and then they're heated. Then they go through, um, they go through chemical processes of being alkalinized, bleached, and deodorized all chemically um, with, a, with approximately four to five different heatings and before they come out and you have this nice kind of light yellow looking pretty uh, oil that you know the American Heart Association and Harvard tells us is healthy. But in fact, these oils are um, extraordinarily oxidized by the time they end up in the bottle. Oxidized means that they're rancid and that they are in fact dangerous right by the time they hit the bottle. Um, and they are also loaded with toxic aldehydes. And we can go into that as well. But so let me, let me give you some numbers that I have worked up recently. Um, so if you look at um, a lot of people talk about omega-6 versus omega-3 ratio, for example. And so the seed oils are the major source of omega-6 fats in the diet today. And, and um, uh, but the, the, so we actually need, so we need a tiny amount of these. So omega-6 is essentially linoleic acid. That's the primary 18 carbon omega-6 fatty acid that is an essential fatty acid. We just need two essential fatty acids, omega-6 linoleic acid and omega-3 alpha linolenic acid. They're, those are LA and ALA respectively, all right? So, so we need tiny amounts of these and our bodies use these as structural and as signaling molecules and they are very important and we need them in very, very tiny doses. So let me, let me tell you that in, so I went back recently and analyzed the American diet and what we would have been getting in 1865 before we had any seed oils and what essentially the whole world would have had for the most part would have been, you know, we would have gotten our omega-6 primarily from pasture raised uh, beef, chicken, uh, pork, and lamb. That's basically it. Those were all raised on pasture, on grass, um, eating their native traditional diet, and their omega-6 in their body fat is extremely low. It's around two to three percent, three and a half percent, roughly. And so, uh, anyway, so I looked at this. I get, I uh, assumed that 19 or uh, 1865 Americans were consuming 40 percent animal fat diet, which is pretty uh, would be pretty typical. Um, cause we're, you know, we're about, most populations are consuming approximately, uh, 40, you know, uh, westernized populations are consuming around 37 to 40% fat. But anyway, so our omega-6 consumption, 1865 would have been 2.2 grams a day. By, by night, by 1909, because we already had cottonseed oil and soybean oil in the food supply, our omega-6 had already doubled. We're at like uh, 4.8 grams a day, all right? So that's a doubling. By, by 1999, we were consuming 18 grams of omega-6 a day 
that is approximately a seven-fold increase um, in uh, omega-6. And by 2008, we're at 29 grams of omega-6 linoleic acid alone. That is a roughly, well, it's 11.8-fold increase. So rounded off a 12-fold increase in our omega-6 consumption over a period of about 145 years, right? 12-fold. This, I believe, is the single most important thing that's ever happened to the world's diet. Because, you know, it started in the United States in the 1860s, and, you know, we started sending vegetable oils to uh, Europe, to the to UK. We adulterated uh, our own olive oil and sent it to uh, Spain and Italy. And, uh, and then, you know, we, and then we got soybean oil in 1909. And then you start getting all the other oils because there's so much money in this for big food. And, uh, and so what happened was, is that um, the vegetable oils gradually supplanted and replaced animal fats. So if you look at, um, in 1900, 99% of our uh, added fats in the diet, in the American diet, came from animal fat, was lard, butter, and beef tallow, and we were fantastically healthy, all right? So by 19, uh, or by 2008, oh, I'm sorry, 2005, 86% of added fats in the diet came from vegetable oils. So we almost completely have replaced and supplanted animal fats, lard, butter, and beef tallow with vegetable oils. And, um, and we have paid a massive price for that because all of these westernized diseases rise exponentially with that uh, substitution alone. So. Now these processed oils, uh, does the body make any oil or you have to get it from food? Well, so you, the thing is, is you only need, as far as the omega-6, um, you only need uh, linoleic acid, 18-carbon linoleic acid, and uh, the, that's the omega-6, and then the omega-3 is alpha-linolenic acid, ALA, and you need those two. From those, you can make all of the other uh, fatty acids that you need. Now, I'm not saying that consuming the longer chain omega-3s like EPA and DHA, icosapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, those that are prominent in fish, for example, yes, those are healthy. But let's face it, here's, here is, you know, the situation is that in the 1900s, very, very few, very, very small part of the American population had access to fish on any regular basis. And yet we didn't have heart disease and we didn't have macular degeneration and cancer rates were exceedingly low. All of this disease, obesity was 1.2% in the 19th century. Um, and so um, you need those, but uh, th those two, the, the linoleic acid and alpha linolenic acid, and you need them in incredibly small numbers. So I'll just give you this, for example, in, 
1909, we were already considered, this is published data from the NIH, from Tanya Bloswald's work. So in, in uh, 1909, we consumed 0 0.76 grams of, of uh, omega-3 ALA, right? But by 1999, that had elevated to 1.76 grams, I believe it was, or around 1.8 grams. So it, it approximately, it more than doubled our omega-3 consumption. And I've already talked about what happened with our omega-6, you know, between 1865 and, and 2008, it went up 12-fold. So in other words, we're not missing omega, we're, we're not needing more omega-3. That's not gonna fix our problem. We already are getting, on average, about two and a half times more omega-3 than we did in 1909. Um, you can't fix this problem with that. You have to get your omega-6 consumption way down. And the only way to do that is to eliminate the seed oils, the vegetable oils. If you're eating, uh, if you're eating uh, red meat and, and it's CAFO red meat, what's the difference in the omega-6 amount from CAFO, a confined feeding lot red meat, as opposed to cattle that's free range and, and roaming? Uh, great question, Carrie, and I can't remember that off the top of my head, but well, I can- Not exact, I mean, but there's a big difference. Isn't that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the, so the, the thing about the, um, every mammal, um, accumulates omega-6 in their diet. Uh, I mean, in the, uh, the omega-6 in their diet accumulates in their fat tissue. And so one of the things that has been happening uh, for a long time with CAFO-raised beef, for example, is that they're putting beef tallow in their food. Now, CAFO-raised beef are consuming um, GMO corn and soy, just you know, just like CAFO-raised chickens, uh, um, CAFO-raised uh, pork, all that. You know, they're all eating very similar things. But but anyway, the the um, PUFAs, the omega six and omega three, go up in the animals that are CAFO-raised uh, substantially. And I can't give you the numbers right offhand, but I can tell you this, that, that the grass-fed animals, and they've looked at this in all kinds of different animals that are, that are um, out grazing on, on grass, like you know, antelope, deer, and, and uh, uh, you know, birds, all, all, the, all kinds of animals have been looked, they've looked at their um, omega-6 and it's all extremely low in their fat. It's around um, typically around two to three and a half percent of their body fat. And, um, and again, because we accumulate these omega-6s in our body fat. And so if you're consuming CAFO-raised beef, you're consuming higher omega-6 even in beef, which is why if you can afford it, it's you're far better off to go, you know, to to get uh, yeah, beef that's raised on pasture, out on grass, graze, grazing on grass their entire life, 100% grass-fed beef. Talk to me about olive oil. 
is olive oil healthy, not healthy? A little bit's okay. Okay, sure, yeah. So first of all, I would say that if it is real, traditional, authentic olive oil, it's pressed you know, from olives, goes right into the bottle, um, and you know, in, in a good, uh, you know, it's extra virgin. In other words, it's not heated. Um, it's maintained properly and it's fresh. Olive oil can be absolutely fine. Um, so I don't want to say too much that there's too much bad with olive oil. I'm going to say that I don't think it's nearly as healthy as grass-fed butter um, because it's higher in the poofas, and we just don't we, we just don't need those. We we so desperately need to get the omega-6 in our own body fat down that I think even olive oil is not your best friend. But it's fantastically better, olive oil is, than all of the uh, high poofa oils, the ones I mentioned, you know, the soybean, corn, canola, cottonseed, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, and rice bran. As you can tell, I've said that a thousand times. Yeah. But anyway, but the problem with here in the United States and even in a lot of Europe, maybe around the world, is that um, olive oil is not really olive oil. 80% of it is confirmed to be adulterated with these cheap vegetable oils. And here's why. Olive oil is expensive to make. I mean, it is not a cheap oil to make if it's good, authentic olive oil. And so here's what's happening is, is that these companies are, are um, they're buying uh, the dirt cheap uh, vegetable oils like soybean or canola, um, which they can buy for about 74 cents per a kilo. Um, that's a thousand grams, uh, which, which turns out to be, it's about 5.6 cents uh, for 80 grams, which is what the Amer average American is consuming per day of, of vegetable oil. They're paying 5.6% uh, 5.6 cents for that. I believe the number was uh, to give you uh, 720 calories worth of food, right? And anyway, so what they're doing is they're adulterating olive oil with this, and four out of five so-called olive oils in the United States are not true olive oil. And people just they think they're getting something healthy. And they're not. So, but if you could, if you know that you're getting good quality olive oil, um, and I would confirm that, uh, um, I would make dead sure if you're going to consume that that it's that it's authentic. Then I think you're okay with that to a degree. I would not recommend cooking with it. I would use it cold, um, and I think you'll be fine. But I would keep the dose, even of olive oil, small. The second food that you looked at, or so-called food that we're eating, that Americans consume that increases the risk of chronic disease, such as macular degeneration, is uh, white flour. So when they, when they use it on the roller mill technology, explain the nutrients that it removes and what nutrients we need to replace because of that process, and what percentage of the population of, of the amount of food that you're eating is from from this type of grain right so um you know first of all i i think that in in perspective um 
refined wheat flour is a very small part of our problem with macular degeneration. Um, I mean, I would estimate, Carrie, that it's probably in the five five percent range or so. But um, but refined wheat flour again is so in eighteen eighty. Um, there was the development of uh, roller mill technology. And roller mill technology can shear away the bran and the germ of wheat. Well, the bran and the germ is where the B vitamins, E vitamins, fiber, minerals, omega-3, and omega-6 fats are. So what you're left with, it, with a highly refined wheat is, is the endosperm. And the endosperm essentially just plain carbohydrate. Now, is this dreadful? Not really, but the problem is, is that um, wheat is 20% of the world's diet. So it's one fifth of the world's diet. And, in, and I only have data on this for the United States because it came from Lauren Cordain's group um, uh, an, I, a number of years ago. But anyway, the, um, they found that 85.3% of grains are processed, meaning they're nutrient deficient, just like refined wheat flour. And so what's happening is, is you know, you're, there's 20% of your diet and you're missing B vitamins, E vitamins, so forth. And you know, when you just start, when you, the more processed food you get, the more, the more you're going to keep adding up on your nutrient deficiencies. And you know, we have two huge issues with food and it's number one is nutrient deficiency, and number two is is toxicity, essentially. And when I say toxicity, what I mean is is that um, the vegetable oils, trans fats, and the fructose part of sugar are to are toxic. And if we if we look at um, omega six and trans fats and the fructose part of sugar, what we know is is that these are pro-inflammatory, pro-oxidative, and directly toxic through the toxic aldehydes. And uh, so, so those, are the, those are the big, really big issues. So in a nutshell, I, I, can, I can go back and tell you this, Kerry. In 1879, United States consumed twice as much wheat as we do per person as we did 100 years later in 1979. Now, what's the difference? Number one is, is in 1879, the wheat was all whole grain. So it was a nutrient uh, sufficient food. It had all the nutrients in it because it was whole grain. Um, 1979, it was mostly nutrient deficient. The second thing is that, you know, I think there's very little talk about is that wheat is being sprayed with herbicides and has been since the 1940s in the U.S. and in most of the world. Today there's something like at least 60 or 70 different herbicides that are being sprayed on wheat and this is I think part of the problem. You know that I mean I can't quantify that and I'm not sure anybody else can either but there's certainly issues with that. Now let's go back to macular degeneration. Talk about how macular degeneration is a marker for systemic health and how it relates to other systemic diseases. Sure. So, you know, in, in mainstream conventional allopathic ophthalmology, 
the, the connection has already been made between um, obesity, uh, metabolic syndrome, hypertension, type two diabetes, um, and heart disease, right? And if you start looking, but if you look, if you start looking further, you see that really there's a connection between macro degeneration and all of these other chronic diseases. So again, you know, uh, from heart disease to stroke, hypertension, cancer, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, and the autoimmune diseases like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and all that. And what we what we know is that if you develop one uh, chronic disease, you're extraordinarily more likely to develop two or three. And I'm at right at the moment I can't remember the exact numbers, but um, but there's an enormous uh, segment of the population today in the U.S. that that has one chronic disease, and uh, I wish I could, you know, quote those numbers to you. But, but the but the fact is, is all of these run together, and the reason that they all run together is because they're all driven by a common unifying mechanism, and that mechanism is processed food consumption. So I always think of it like I saw a picture long time ago where you had processed foods at the base you know like at the epicenter and then in this mushroom cloud above it what you see is is all of these diseases of of civilization you know heart disease cancer stroke hypertension uh obesity all of it runs together so when so when conventional allopathic ophthalmology tells us for example, that obesity is a risk factor for macular degeneration. Um, I tend to think of it like, you know, to, today I think of it like I would say obesity is a risk factor for macular degeneration. To me, it's not the risk factor. It simply runs with macular degeneration because they're both driven by the same thing. And so, you know, when you when an ophthalmologist or optometrist sees a patient in the office and they are overweight or obese and you say all right well your obesity is causing your macular degeneration i vehemently disagree with that i would submit that you know and let me back up a step and the, and then the ophthalmologist or optometrist might say so what you need to do is you need to lose weight in order to decrease your risk, right? Well, the problem is, is that the, the patient doesn't know why they're obese in the first place because of all the confusing messages, right? And so how are they gonna lose weight? If they, would, if they knew, um, then they would have probably done it because it's not just eat less, move more. That doesn't work, that doesn't work in anybody. And um, so, but they're driven by the exact same thing and it's they're driven by a processed food laden diet and so this is what we ophthalmologists and optometrists need to collectively begin to realize and start understanding what the functional medicine practitioners have known for probably to a degree I mean decades if you go back to Weston Price's research if, if we would have looked at that we would have known this in 1939 but orthodox allopathic conventional medicine 
pays no attention to this and has virtually no interest in preventing disease. So many times we'll look into somebody's eye and now there's new research coming up. We see peripheral drusen or OCP technology. It says, ah, oh, you see this, this pattern on the optic nerve or you see peripheral drusen, you're at risk for Alzheimer's disease. But really it's all running together based on the diet that we're, that we're eating. That's exactly right. It all runs together. Before we go through the solutions, which we kind of know the cause, so we kind of know the solution, but talk to us about some of the other countries uh, when they started to get macular degeneration how, and how this adds credence to the theory that you've uh, come up with. It seems it's no longer a theory. It's pretty close to being fact, in my opinion. Right. Well, and this is uh, what I'll report here is our published data. So we have a paper um, in the journal Medical Hypotheses, November of 2017, and uh, from our group. And uh, what I'll tell you here is, is, is in our paper, and there's a whole lot more there, uh, of course, and, and I've, got a whole, I've got a whole lot more in, in our book. There, there, isn't, there wasn't room in the paper to publish all the data that we have. Um, because we have data on 25 nations, but let me give you <clears throat> let me give you an example. So, so let me start with this because I think this is extraordinarily compelling. Is so so conventional ophthalmology and optometry tells us today that um, 46, I believe it's 46 to 71 percent of uh, macular degeneration is driven by genetics. That comes from a paper that came out of Baskin Palmer in 2016. 50, at, already at that point, there was 52 gene variants that were related to macular degeneration. And so if up to 71% of this disease is driven by genetics, and then the rest, you know, much of the rest of it is aging, how much is is driven, you know, according to, again, conventional ophthalmology, how much of this disease is thought to be aging and genetics? I'm gonna say it must be in the 75 to 85% range, maybe, I don't know, but a, a massive part of it, right? Okay, so let's take the example of, uh, of the um, West Africans, okay? There's three populations of West Africans, and we have studies that show the prevalence of their macular degeneration in recent years. So uh, Africans of Southwestern rural Nigeria, um, there was a study, uh, and I, I believe this came out in the early 2000s. And what it showed was that uh, the prevalence of macular degeneration in these people over about age 41 was 0.1%. Now this is a small study, but it's, but it's, you know, it's published and it's very relevant. Uh, now, 0.1%. Now, what do we know about the people in southwestern rural Nigeria is, is other research showed that they can't get processed food, all right? They didn't have, gro they didn't have access to grocery stores, uh, restaurants, nothing like that. They're consuming a native traditional diet. They're living off of the land, right? Okay. 240 miles away, there's a population in Onitsha, Nigeria. They studied uh, macular degeneration in these also Western African people. And the prevalence of macular degeneration there was 3.2%. Uh, 
So it's 32 fold higher in this population that was 50 and older. All right, so how do we explain um, in two populations of West Africans, you know, one in Onicha, Nigeria has a macular degeneration prevalence that's 32 fold higher. How do we explain that? Well, in Onicha, Nigeria, that's a metropolitan population of 1.1 million people. They have grocery stores, they have restaurants, they have processed food, they're getting seed oil, sugar, all that. Not nearly to the degree that most of the world is, which is why their macular degeneration prevalence is relatively low, even there. All right, now, if you jump across the, the Atlantic down to um, Barbados, the, the people of Barbados are about 97% African. And they're, they're African because they're brought there, their ancestors were brought there as slaves. So there was a study done in 1990, I think it came out in 1992, that looked at the uh, African people of Barbados and uh, for uh, people uh, 40 to 83 years of age, their macular degeneration prevalence was 24.3%. 243 times greater than the Africans of Southwestern rural Nigeria. Why would this be? People of Barbados, we nutrition researchers around the world know that um, Barbados is a quote, mecca for processed food consumption. And they have a quote, this is what researchers say, a quote, world profile of metabolic disease, end quote. And that means they have heart disease, cancers, uh, metabolic syndrome, obesity, all of that, right? Naturally, they would, because the problem is, is that the people of Barbados started importing all of their food, and imported food is processed food. I mean, people are not importing cows and chickens. Um, <laughs> they're importing junk, you know, junk food, most, you know, boxed, canned, packaged, food, you know, uh, those, those kind of, you know, uh, potato chips, hot dogs, you name it, right? Um, anyway, so what we see is, is um, we see a difference of, these are all three West African populations um, and a difference of 243 fold in their macular degeneration prevalence. And you can explain all of it by the difference in their, um, in their food consumption. All right, we take Japan, for example. In the 19, from 1974 to 1979, there was a study that showed that macular degeneration prevalence in Japan was 0.2%. Um, all right, so fast forward 30 years to 2007, their macular degeneration prevalence uh, at the lowest level was 11.4%. Um, that is a 57-fold increase in the prevalence of macular degeneration in 30 years. So what do we know about their diet? In a nutshell, they westernized it. For example, um, their sugar consumption didn't go up that much. As I think it went up about one and a half fold over that period of time. But their vegetable oil consumption in 1961 was nine grams a day per person. And by 2007, I believe it was, was 39 grams a day. So their vegetable oil consumption went up four and a half fold in that period. So that is a huge increase in vegetable oil. Um, and what they did, again, they 
they substituted vegetable oil for other foods, you know, like possibly rice, possibly, you know, other meats and so forth. One, I'll give you one more example. So New Zealand in 1969, their macular degeneration prevalence was 1.3% for people over the age of 50. Um, by 2014, uh, people aged 45 to 85, their macular degeneration prevalence was 10.3%. So it went up eightfold, eightfold, right? In a period of about whatever that is, 40 years, roughly. Um, yeah, 45 years. So, but their vegetable oil consumption in 1960 was about zero to one gram a day and was about 20 grams a day, but from 1991 forward. So they increased their vegetable oil consumption roughly 20 fold. Um, and again, and some of these numbers for vegetable oil are underreported because not all the vegetable oil manufacturers are submitting their data to the data banks that would, in, that would uh, monitor uh, the, the total consumption. So if anything, our, our data numbers are undervalued. We hear about low fat, low carb, high carb, et cetera, all these different types of diets. What is a primitive diet? And what type of diet kept these people healthy? What did they eat? Well, Carrie, when you say these people, I mean, do, are you talking about any population or what, population, what population? Any population before, primitive populations, the ancestral diets before people got chronic disease such as macular degeneration. What were they eating to stay healthy? You know, so the, 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 pop, the, the diets, of populations around the world are just drastically different. And we could talk about, you know, the different populations and what they're consuming. You know, I mean, um, like, you know, early Americans, uh, you know, 19th, mid 19th century Americans, we consumed lots of beef, uh, chicken, pork, um, and uh, mutton, you know, lamb. Um, and, and the usual thing, you know, uh, plenty of uh, plenty of grains, dairy, eggs, dairy, butter, all of those were uh, were staples in the American diet. Again, we didn't have any we didn't have any of those four processed food groups. You know, there were sugars, refined wheat flour, vegetable oils, and trans fats. You could say a very very similar thing about the British, for example. Their diet, I think, was quite similar to ours in that regard. But if you look at, um, if you look at, here's a really interesting one, the, the Maasai uh, tribe of Kenya and Tanzania, um, they were studied, uh, they've been studied by uh, several groups, but I like the research from George Mann's group uh, that was published in 1972. And um, the Maasai tribe, uh, so they're pastoralists, they, they raise uh, cattle and uh, they live off of almost exclusively milk, meat and blood. And most of that is milk. And they're, so they don't, they don't uh, sacrifice their animals very often. So they don't eat a whole lot of, of animal meat uh, from their own cattle. Um, they'll kill animals and eat other animals, but they don't kill their own cattle very often. But anyway, they consume about, the average Maasai 
uh, warrior would consume three to five quarts of whole raw milk per day. And that, that is a very high saturated fat milk from these animals. It's, it's upwards of 68% saturated. So Maasai warriors were getting, this is all published, they're getting 66% of their diet was animal fat. At least 33 and up to 45% of that, probably closer to 45% of it is saturated animal fat, right? Their diet was like 17% carbohydrate because they got almost no fruits or vegetables ever. In fact, the Muran part of the Maasai, which is the, the warriors aged 14 to about 30 to 35, in that period, they're not allowed to consume anything other than milk, meat, and blood. Nothing. Nothing else. And so, but yet, in 1972, George Mann's group, they did autopsies on uh, 50, 50 people, no heart disease, no heart attacks. They did 350 EKGs of the Maasai and found one possible silent MI, silent heart attack, in the entire group. So what they found was that they're essentially have no cardiovascular disease. And if you look at these guys, they're extraordinarily lean, just chiseled, ripped, brilliantly healthy people. They had no obesity, no diabetes, no, uh, virtually no cancer. Um, you know, you can't find a healthier population anywhere on the planet. Um, do you want me to give you other examples, Kerry? I, I could go on. I can talk about more if you well, want. If we could just talk about what should the what should somebody do? What should they eat to try to prevent them from getting chronic disease and macular degeneration? What are some of the simple things that they could do? Yeah, okay. all the research that you've done and what you've learned, and uh, so we kind of know that all these. Uh, you know, the ancestral diets, they're all kind of a little bit different. They are all high in macro and micronutrients. They're not eating processed foods. But the person sitting home, what can they do? You know, they think, well, they wouldn't sell it in the supermarket if it was bad for me. So what can they do? What can we do? What should we do? Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, you can make an ancestral diet. And this is what I follow is, I say that, I mean, I'm just eating an ancestral diet is what I'd call it. I wouldn't call it, I, I don't call it paleo. I, I'm not keto. I'm not, I'm not low carb. I'm not low fat. You can make your diet any kind of food you want. You can eat American, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, uh, you know, Bolivian, you know, you can eat like a Maasai warrior. So here's the thing. You can make any kind of food you want, but if you're going to eat healthy, I will submit to you that it is not easy in this day and age. You have to, I believe, you need to prepare almost all of your own food. And if you eat out, you've got to be extraordinarily careful because you need to eliminate those four things, sugar, refined wheat, vegetable oils and trans fat. And if you eat any processed man-made food, if it comes ready-made, you are almost guaranteed to be eating those things and eating significant amounts. Almost nobody is pouring vegetable oil into their food. Now people do who cook at home and they're pouring the wrong oil in there, but 
most people don't even need to ever own a bottle of vegetable oil and yet they're consuming 80 grams of vegetable oil a day because it's already in the prepared food um, because prepared food is made with sugar and vegetable oils those are the primary and 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 wheat those are the primary components right there so you need to start by making your own food you want tacos you want um i don't know um a fish dinner you want hamburgers make it with you know make it yourself and make it with ancestral ingredients start with that and and if you um, what what I think is the easiest thing to do people get so caught up in you know What are the healthy oils quite frankly? I think the simplest one of the healthiest things you can possibly do is eliminate all oils from your diet just in order to keep it simple no oils use butter for all of your cooking and get a good pastured butter this is a grass-fed butter and they're they're in most grocery stores uh, I don't even need to name names. Just look for pastured butter. These are the cattle are uh, raised on grass, and they make the butter from those, and that will give you a fantastically healthy source of fat to cook in. And I, you know, we cook in uh, almost everything in in butter. Um, but that so if you have to eat out, if you have to you have to be extraordinarily vigilant to find foods that do not contain these ingredients and i have a friend and i started doing this she read my book we became friends and she, what she tells when she goes into a restaurant she says um uh look i have an allergy to vegetable oils so uh if you you know and then the the, the waiter waitress waitress they'll go to the the back and make sure because they don't want somebody to have an allergic reaction in their restaurant right it would just be devastating to them so they make sure that 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 they're not getting if it's going to be cooked in any kind of oil you know they're going to eliminate that or they're going to cook it in butter or they're not going to use any oil at all but that's i think that is a great thing to do you just say i'm allergic to it and might as well be because these oils are poisons, so call it an allergy, but you've got to get the, those out of your diet. That's, that's, the, that's a key step. But we want to eat real food, kind of like our great-grandmother ate. Everything's right. one ingredient, organic, and it, it doesn't really matter if we're eating meat as, as long as it's grass-fed or, or, or fish, it, as long as it's not farm-raised and it, it's wild and it's small fish, and we're eating it from head, head to tail. So we're eating the entire we're eating the entire animal. You talk about head to tail eating that that's really important. You can make a quick mention of that. Yes. So, so if you looked at Weston Price's research in a nutshell, which is just extraordinary, I think you know everybody on the planet ought to read his book, uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, published in 1939 and 1945. One of the things, one a massive understanding you'll walk away from that book with and it'll it'll change your life if you haven't read it read it it's 500 pages you know if you you'll understand almost everything you need to know about nutrition you won't understand the toxicity of today's food but you're going to understand what to do and the the but the take-home point here is that what price found was that native traditional diets on, on five continents had 
10 times more fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, and K2, than uh, Americans' diets in the 1930s. 10 times more A, D, and K2, and we are so incredibly deficient in those vitamins. Uh, and they contained, the, the native traditional diets price found contained four times more water-soluble vitamins, which is all the B vitamins and C, than American diets of 1930s, and one and a half to 60 times more minerals. So that right there, as I said, the two big issues are is nutrient deficiency and toxicity from processed foods. So you wanna get nutrient dense food. And how do you do that? You get it from the foods that have been vilified in the last 60, 70 years. And those foods are meat, animal meats, eggs, butter, all raised in the right way, you know, meats, eggs, butter, raw milk. I wouldn't say pasteurized milk. I would call that a processed food that's not probably worth consuming, but raw milk, those things right there will give you all those vitamins and organ meats. So as Carrie's saying, we need to eat head to tail from these animals. So, you, so organ meats are extraordinarily nutrient dense. Um, so liver, heart, kidneys, pancreas, all those kind of things, that's where the nutrients are. They're in the organs. So one of the, one of the healthiest things that everybody should do, in my opinion, is eat liver. Um, I would say every other week for sure, eat a few ounces of liver. It's one of the healthiest things you could possibly do because you're getting all the vitamins A, D, K2, you're getting minerals all in a few ounces of incredibly nutritious food. For example, beef liver gives you, could give you around 52,000 international units of vitamin A in three ounces. Compare that to 40 international units of vitamin A in a boneless, skinless chicken breast. 40 versus 50,000. Um, you know, the comparison is just, you know, is just, uh, uh, dramatically different. You mentioned this before, just a quick mention again about saturated fat. We're told that saturated fat is gonna kill us and give us heart attacks. Just, uh, just review some of that for a minute. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the, I think what makes the most sense is, is when people start arguing about, here's what's happened is, is, is people went down the path essentially of this and researchers that we were misled by, by one simple severe misconception. And it was that there was a belief system that cholesterol causes heart disease and saturated fat elevates cholesterol. And therefore saturated fat causes heart disease, right? The whole thing has been proven over, over, and over again to be false. I mean, there's no validity to this argument whatsoever. There are so many studies that have, uh, that have uh, discounted entirely that entire argument. In fact, today there is extraordinary evidence that there is virtually no relationship, almost no relationship whatsoever between cholesterol and heart disease, for example, native traditional, uh, native uh, cholesterol in LDL, for example. So no, no relation between LDL and established heart 
disease as evidenced by the gold standard of scanning, which is coronary artery calcium scanning, right? So 20 studies, this was published just recently, or in the last uh, 11 years, that there's no relationship between heart disease and LDL cholesterol at all. In fact, th just the opposite was shown, for example, um, uh, Ufe Ravskov's group published just in 2015, I think it was, um, on uh, around 19 different studies that looked at this intensively. And what they found was that people that have the highest cholesterol live the longest, not the shortest. If you're over age 60, the higher your cholesterol, the longer you live. You have less heart disease, less stroke, less cancers, less dementia, less Alzheimer's, all of those things. All right, so, um, so now let's look at a couple of populations, for example. So again, I mentioned the Maasai warriors already. 33 to 45% of their diet saturated animal fat. That's the highest amount of saturated animal fat of any population known on the planet. And they don't have any heart disease. They have virtually none, right? One possible case of a silent MI in their entire studied population. Um, let's talk about the inhabitants of Tokelau, the South Pacific island of Tokelau. The, the Tokelauans were studied in the 1960s and 70s, and their diet is uh, around, um, I forget the exact numbers, but around 60% comes from coconut. So most of that is coconut oil. Well, coconut oil is 91 to 94.5% saturated. So the Tokelauans diet was 48% saturated fat. Virtually half of their diet is saturated fat. So while the Maasai warriors, the Maasai tribe of Kenya and Tanzania get the honors for consuming the most saturated animal fat in the world and have no heart disease, the Tokelauans consume the most saturated fat, which comes from a tropical oil, coconut, and guess what? They had zero heart disease. And in fact, they had zero chronic disease. They had virtually, there was no obesity, no diabetes, virtually no cancer in their entire studied population. Extraordinarily healthy people. So what were they eating? They were eating mostly coconut, um, small amount of fish, and uh some fruits and vegetables and that was basically about it very simple diet they did they did uh uh i think they did have uh, very small amounts of pork and chicken but i think that was really small for us is which is better grass-fed butter to cook with or organic coconut oil well i think grass-fed butter uh personally they're both good they're both really really good coconut oil is really, really healthy to cook with uh, because of the fact, again, it's 91 to 94.5% saturated. Saturated fats won't oxidize. They won't undergo peroxidation, which is what the polyunsaturated fats will do. So, so with coconut oil, you're, you're absolutely going to be in really super good shape if you're cooking with coconut oil. But the one thing that coconut oil won't give you that butter, grass-fed butter will, is vitamins A, D, and K2. And so 
that's the thing. There isn't an oil on the planet that comes from vegetables that has vitamins A, D, and K2. Uh, you're not going to get those. Butter, you will. You'll get them. I got to ask you this. That people always ask me, they say back in 1800s, people didn't get these chronic diseases because they didn't live long enough. How do you respond to that? Yeah, um, another uh, fantastic and major misconception. So here's what people do, and this, this drives me bananas, is that, so they, they, they look back at the uh, um, average life expectancy. Um, I wish I had the, those notes here. I, I may carry, but. Uh, um, Give me approximation. Yeah, so the average life expectancy in, uh, in, in the US in 1900 was like 49.8 years, I think it was, so uh, in the United States. And so they go, well, nobody lived past 50. Therefore, they didn't get heart disease and cancer and, and uh, all these diseases, right? They didn't get, that's why they didn't get macular degeneration. Well, that is a complete and utter fallacy because here, um, Here's, let me give you a hypothetical situation. So if a, if a man lives to be 80 and his only son dies at six months of age, the average life expectancy of the two is 40 years, right? Okay, now let's take a family of three. A man lives to be 80, his wife lives to be 70, and their child dies at six months of age. The total uh, years lived for the three is 150 divided by three. Now the average life expectancy, average life expectancy is 50. So that's called life expectancy at birth, and that's 50 years. Well, this is the scenario for 19th century Americans. Here's why. In 1800, in all the world, 43.3% of children did not live to see their fifth birthday. Almost half of the world's children, 43.3%. In 1900, it wasn't much better. 36.2% of the world's children did not live to see their fifth birthday. And in 1900, in the United States, 4% of women died in childbirth. The risk of death in childbirth in the year 1900 was one to one and a half percent per birth. And so there was three uh, average of around three to four births. So the average, you know, so on average, 4% of women died in childbirth, which is again, was typically, typically before age 30 or 35, right? So right there, you've got 40% of the population, roughly 30 to 40% of the population dead at an, a very early age. So childhood is an extreme, was extremely dangerous, uh, 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 you know, term to get through because of infectious diseases. Primarily, so children could easily die of, um, you know, typhoid, uh, gastrointestinal infections, and so forth. Even you know, cholera, severe diarrheal diseases could kill children because they never could make it to a doctor or to a hospital. Get, just get IV fluids, for example, and there were no no antibiotics. So, um, so, so right there, what we know is is that, uh, you know. People lived into old age. In fact, the, the, as an example, the first nine U.S. presidents lived to an average age of um, 
uh, I take it back. I've got the, the data here. The first eight US presidents uh, lived to an average of 79.4 years, right? The average age of death for a man today in the US is 76. Um, and the, the, the last of those first eight US presidents to, uh, to die was in uh, 1862. That was Martin Van Buren. Now, the last 12 presidents to die that have all died since 1923, their average age at death was 75 and a half years. They all died of chronic disease, every single one of them. They died of stroke, heart attack, cancer, congestive heart failure, and Alzheimer's. That's the last 12 presidents. And I excluded JFK because he was assassinated and that would have dropped the, the average lifespan way down. So now let me tell you this. In, in what the first eight presidents die of? I'm sorry? The first eight presidents that you talked about. What oh yeah, they all died of, they virtually all died of infectious disease. Uh, I mean, virtually, I think one or one of them had a stroke, if I remember right. I'm not sure if I have that. Um, um, uh, yeah, I don't have that handy, but they... Um, In general, they died of infectious disease rather than chronic disease. Right, right. So, yeah, but in a nutshell, the first eight U.S. presidents lived 3.9 years longer than our last 12 to die right? Um, if you looked at in the United Kingdom, I'll give you an example. In the United Kingdom, in 1891, at age 70, 43% of the population at age 70 was still alive. 43%. And in 1911, 51% of the population in England was still alive uh, at age 70, right? It's just because, I mean, the kids are dying and the women in childbirth, that's what was happening. And so today, you know, today what we have is a situation where, um, where people are living longer, but the last um, 10 or, you know, the 10 or 15 years of, or 20 years of their lives are just absolutely miserable. You know, we have people in nursing homes for the last 10 or 15 years of their lives, a lot of them, um, you know, because of chronic disease. So, you know, I gave one example with macro degeneration in the year, uh, in 1920, there was, um, I think, I don't have that data handy, but in 1920, I think it was 4.1 million people were, um, were over the age of 65 in the United States. And uh, so if, if macular degeneration prevalence was the same in 1920 as it was in 1990, um, then there should have been over 1.1 million people with macular degeneration in the year 1920. And we know that there was no more than 50 cases of macular degeneration in all the world's literature between 1851 and 1930, right? So, I mean, the, the, the literature would have just been covered with macular degeneration cases in 1920, it, because I mean, ophthalmologists were dilating the eyes. They were using ophthalmoscopes in 1860s. They were dilating the eyes with five or six different dilating agents by the 1880s, and uh, and they gave extraordinary accounts of what they would see in the in the macula in the retina uh, in the late 19th century. Let alone the early 20th century. There was a there was uh, 
200 different uh, models of ophthalmoscope available by 1913 around the world. 200 different brands and versions in use around the world. And yet, no more than 50 cases of macular degeneration in all the world's literature at that point. Well, I want to thank Dr. Chris Kenobi. He's a wealth of knowledge for joining us today. Chris, if people want to find out more about you and about your organization, how can they do that? Yeah, so the organization is called Cure AMD Foundation, and we're at Cure, C-U-R-E-A-M-D.org, CureAMD.org. We give away all the information. Now, I, have, I do have a book available that is, you can get to it from there, or you can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we are a, uh, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um, I earn nothing from this organization. I am interested in helping people and preventing vision loss. 340 people at least will go blind from macular degeneration today. And everything I know, every last morsel that I, of, of evidence and knowledge I've learned in the last nine years about this tells me that every single case of vision loss in that due to macular degeneration is preventable. And that's why I am here today with Dr. Kerry Gelb, because I want to be a part of this movement that stops that and helps people get healthier by understanding ancestral diets and what they can do for you. And they are amazing. I'm living proof. I feel fantastic today. And I can do things today that I couldn't do nine years ago when I was 50 because of an ancestral diet. I want you... I, all of your audience to hear this message, Carrie, and I want to change their lives because it's it's just fun and it's just amazing. Well, I want to work with you together with our film, Open Your Eyes, to help prevent this terrible disease. Uh, signing off, this is Dr. Carrie Gell for Open Your Eyes. Thank you for joining us.